panel, I recall eating free, nutritious school meals, including pudding, back in 60s England. My parents were on low income for a while, and we lived in a back-to-back house in my teen years. You're on the panel on RNZ National. Citizens Advice Bureau could possibly face closure in Tamaki Makoto. Mayor Wayne Brown's draft budget 2023 proposes stopping or reducing funding to CAB. There are 32 offices in Auckland with around 1,000 volunteers. Citizens Advice Bureau would be among social arts and education programs, totaling $20 million to be possibly cut. Uh, CAB costs $2 million of that to run. A newsroom uh, has picked up on this. And look, have you used Citizens Advice Bureau services? One person says, Kira Wallace, someone who has not been at CAB cannot understand the feeling of people who leave CAB after help they have received from them. Sylvia Hunt is the volunteer chair of Auckland Citizens Advice Bureau, the liaison body between council and the 32 Auckland bureaus. Kia ora, Sylvia. Kia ora. Look, it is just a draft. It's just a draft. But tell us about CAB for those who don't know. What role does it serve? Um, CAB provides a service um, to those people who find it difficult, either through uh, poverty or through lack of ability, to access their rights. Um, So we are a volunteer organisation. People, 900 or 1,000 volunteers give their services in the Auckland region. Um, And we are the only body in Auckland that provides this service. We've been providing it for 50 years. and anybody who uses the CAB will tell you that um, this is a wonderful service for them. Um, they come into us frustrated, um, annoyed, uh, not able to solve their problems. And um, we, with our fully trained volunteers, um, offer them advice that, that helps them resolve their problems. Um, we've been particularly active throughout the floods and throughout uh, COVID. A lot of, of course, when COVID, we couldn't do a lot face to face, but we had a very good online service. Um, that's principally what we do. Uh, let's be very clear here, um, Sylvia. Is there a possibility, just a possibility, that by the end of the year, after 50 years or 51 years, no, 50 years of Citizen Advice Bureau in Auckland, it could be cut. There'd be no more CAB. Well, that is indicated in the draft budget, which was issued before Christmas. We liaise with, with council representatives and we asked that question. And when we said, you know, will our funding be cut this year? Um, they said, almost certainly. And we've got a three-year agreement with the council that expires in the middle of 2024. So we've really had the rug pulled from our narrow feet. It gives us no time to actually regroup and think, well, how would we manage to provide this service going forward? It's also so cost-effective because it's volunteers. Um, you know, if, if the government, uh, sorry, the council had to uh, pay for this, um, I don't, I mean, just think about it, 900 part-time people, how much would that cost? Uh- Okay, I know that we, the panel will want to come in too, but look, let's mm. just look at the figures. I mean, the council uh, was already in the midst of trying to come up with ways to close this. 
$300 million hole in its finances. Yeah. And that was before the flood, Sylvia. Clearly, it's unpalatable to say, but some programs are just going to have to get the cut. Yes, I can see that. They are in, we, we un- completely understand that they're in this significant financial hole. But ours is, in comparatively, is such an inexpensive, necessary service that uh, we just don't see, you know, why we should be cut. We're going to be helping the very people that they, they are aiming to help. We're there for the well-being of the people of Auckland. All right, Julia. Look, I think it'd be a travesty, seriously, if they cut this. Um, you know, citizens' advice are totally impartial. They're independent. They help so many people. I mean, so many of my clients who can't afford us, they can't afford to see a lawyer. They, I direct them to citizens' advice. You and do? It's, it's, it totally have done for... Mm. I've been in business for 27 years and have been doing that for 27 years. And I think that, you know, we deal with sending people there for immigration issues, like legal issues, um, people that are due witnesses in court. I mean, they do so much good. And, like, you know, they're free, for God's sake. It's just crazy, okay. and it's uh, so needed. Email me, the panel at rnz.co.nz. Do you see Citizens Advice Bureau in Auckland, these 32 officers, as essential to keep or not, your view, welcome. Stay there, Sylvia. Alan Blackman. Well, I'm sure if you did a cost-benefit analysis of all of this, it would come out on the positive side, surely. And, you know, echoing Sylvia's words, that these people are all volunteers, and how much would it cost um, if they weren't? Um, my, my main question is that reading this document, um, Auckland apparently is $11.5 billion in debt. Um where, where did that come from? And also, one of the things that is on their list of uh, possible closures or whatever, um, ironically, they're proposing to reduce reactive stormwater maintenance services. Um, you might think they might be rethinking that after <laughs> last Friday week. But yeah, I mean that um, was the draft. That was a draft budget. Uh, I'm sure they'll be rejigging. Sylvia, is there any other funding? Mm. Why why can it not be funded from central government? Like the Wellington Citizen Advice Bureau. That question. Um, it is something the council would very much like to see. Um, there's a huge um, uh, uh, councillors would would prefer that the lo- that the government funded us. The problem is there's um, the local government community wellbeing amendment act 2019, which quite firmly places the responsibility for the wellbeing of communities on councils. So the government will not fund us. They do fund head office, uh, national office, sorry, um, for the reason that the national office provide the government with uh, data and research that they need when they are preparing policy. But when it comes to dealing with the local communities, which the, the CAB branches do, that under under law is meant to be uh, the cap, sorry, the funding's meant to be provided by the local authorities. All right. So, well, you've got a, a lot, big, quite a bit of feedback here coming through. Yeah. Uh, CAB is a sub- There is nowhere else we can go for funding. We've tried. Um, right. You know, organisations won't fund operational costs, which, you know, are very low considering the service that we offer. Um, so we, we are going to be a bit stuck, I think. <laughs> 
I'm sure we'll be hearing more about this because yeah. uh, the budget is uh, looming for uh, Auckland. Uh, for now, Sylvia Hunt, kia ora. Thank you for your time on the panel. That's Sylvia Hunt, who is the volunteer chair of uh, the Auckland Citizen Advice Bureau. Uh, now, um, yeah, well, gosh, there's a lot on that. Uh, absolutely, it's an essential service. Proposing funding cuts is short-sighted. It will be a saving on the short term. Uh, it's a superb service. I've used them several times in the last year. Once to get out of a dodgy garden contract, they advise on everything, are passionate about helping their fellow citizens. So, uh, yeah, your thoughts are most welcome on the Citizens Advice Bureau. 15 away from five, you're on the panel with private investigator Julia Hartley-Moore and Professor of Chemistry and Breaking Bad fan, Alan Blackman. Uh, it is... Uh, I haven't seen it, actually. I must see it. Um, now... <laughs> As the cleanup continues across the Auckland region, attention now turns to the future. The sheer scale and force of the rain surprised and shocked everyone. Motorways and streets becoming raging rivers. So the question now is what sort of infrastructure will be needed? And that has been the focus, needless to say, over at Infrastructure NZ. Auckland Mayor Wayne Brown said the damage sustained by the flood-hit city and ongoing climate change may have implications for the council's budgets. To discuss, we have uh, Michelle McCormick, Policy Director at Infrastructure NZ, who wrote an opinion piece on this. Michelle, kia ora. Kia ora, Wallace. And you talk about this infrastructure deficit gap being around $210 billion worth. It's significant. I wanted to ask, how did it get so huge? I mean, that's just an eye-watering figure. Absolutely. Yeah, it's um, absolutely huge amount of money. And that is due to decades of underinvestment by both local and central government. Um, there is some good news. Um, I think actually even recognising the size of this deficit, uh, which Treasury and Te Waihanga, the New Zealand Infrastructure Commission, um, have done some work to quantify uh, the government has now committed $57 billion over the next five years to a raft of large infrastructure projects. Um, but, you know, as we, if we continue as we are, we can expect the cost of infrastructure to grow significantly. And we've got huge challenges, um, as we've seen with climate change and the impact of that and our um, increasing population as well. Is it just, Michelle, because as you say, an air $60 billion is going to be ploughed into it, uh, you need, uh, it needs a lot more, it's a big discussion. Is it just fair to say that um, events have caught on really quickly and we have noticed uh, just not getting up to speed, in part because of climate change? Yep, absolutely right. Um, I mean, there's no looking away from that. It's, it's right in our face. Um, I mean, we, what we're spending at the moment, you know, is 5.5% of um, GDP um, on building public infrastructure. But actually, if we need to address that deficit, um, and it's growing every day, as we're seeing, uh, we really need to be spending about 9.6% of GDP over the next 35 years. So that's about $31 billion a year. Oh, that's huge. Yep. I mean, that's, that's, that's just huge money. All right, Julia. Oh, no, that's massive. It's massive. But you know the other thing, Wallace, it's, it's where they build. It's where people build too that I think – I mean, I'm, I'm living out here on the coast and I've seen houses um, not around here, not this time, but in other places that have 
just fallen down, fallen over cliffs. So swimming pools have gone down. I mean, you know, we, they're building on clay. We're not made of rock here. You know, it's not like the Amalfi Coast where it's just rock. So I don't get it why you, I mean, all the houses we're on the on the waterfront here, I often joke and say I'll be there shortly because the, this it's just a natural erosion and this is actually helping it more. So it's where and it's okay. the, and it's. Yes, uh, I know that uh, the Prime Minister alluded to the location of houses. Stay there, Michelle. Let's bring Alan Blackman in. Yeah, I mean, the $210 billion price tag, I mean, that is close to the annual GDP of New Zealand. And, you know, that's an eye-watering amount. And obviously, the problem is that it's the current infrastructure that needs replacing or improving. Um I'm hopefully fairly sure that, um, you know, in, in new subdivisions and stuff like that, that, that all of the drainage is, is up to scratch and it's, and it's all good stuff. It's the older stuff, presumably, that's causing all the problems. And, you know, it's all below ground. It is going to cost a fortune to update that, to replace it or whatever. And, um, you know, that's a, that's a nettle that somebody's going to have to yes. grasp in the very near future, I think. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so needless to say, Michelle, has been discussed now, hasn't it, and there's some urgency uh, in all this. I mean, there's the forthcoming uh, Climate Adaptation Act, the third part of the RMA. So that'll start putting requirements into infrastructure, but that's, you know, later, not now. What 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 do you think is the first thing? that you would address or should be addressed? Um, I think immediately we're looking at the remediation work uh, from the floods to actually clean up to make sure that um, the existing drainage system is, you know, we haven't got blocks unnecessarily, um, that the natural lie of the land and flow of the water can go into those existing channels. Um, But then we really need to build back better and uh, every every time infrastructure is replaced or built new, uh, we need sustainable design with climate change in mind and be looking at those greater volumes of water in the the different um, climatic features that they're going to have to encounter. Very good, Michelle. Thanks for your time. That is Michelle McCormick there, Policy Director at Infrastructure NZ, uh, designing for the future, but for now, making sure that uh, those waterways, drains, everything, uh, uh, they're unblocked. Just those uh, small things that you can do. Now I see that there is a possible weather event uh, looming towards the upper uh. North Island uh, to come. We don't know if that's going to be... Um, of any severity yet, but uh, needless to say, we've got a plan, don't we? Nine away from five, you're on the panel uh, on RNZ National. Well, this story piqued my interest. So you have a small refuse company. They've got a few bins, and you want a catchy name for the company, so you name your company Lord of the Bins. Of course, their slogan, one ring to remove it all. Well, That happened in the UK. They're a two-man team, but they've been ordered by lawyers working for Middle Earth Enterprises to cease and assist. Kate Duckworth is an intellectual property law expert, a member of the New Zealand Intellectual Property Association. Kate, welcome to the panel. Thanks for having me on, Wallace, and hi to Julia and Alan. Yeah, pleasure, Kate. So Middle Earth Enterprises, they own global rights to Hobbit and Lord of the Rings franchises, but... Is this fair? I mean, Lord of the Bins. I thought that was quite clever. Yeah, well, I've been thinking that uh, 
they, they, Middle Earth Enterprises owns just about everything on Earth. So unfortunately, this, this is one of those occasions where uh, they probably have for themselves uh, of, of the, the massive enterprise. And using that phrase, you know, one, one ring, uh, again, that, that's a direct reference or an allusion back um, oh. to the Lord of the Rings, isn't it? But it's also, you know, it's not the only Lord around. We had Lord of the Flies, um, that was published the same year as Lord of the Rings. Uh, and you might be familiar with, uh, there's a takeaway business called Lord of the Fries. Still going? Lord, yes. of the, Lord of the Fries, so they've uh, yeah. passed the muster. I just feel so unequal, Kate, I guess. I mean, you've got a multi-billion dollar company versus two guys who run a little rubbish business. Yeah, you, you've got to look after all aspects of your business, though, don't you? If you're the, mm. if you're the trademark owner, you can't let that creep happen because, it, it, you know, to can turn into a bigger thing. And, and so, yeah, it, it does seem unfair, you picking on the small guy, but they're also looking after their intellectual property portfolio. Okay, fair enough, I guess. Uh, what about you, Julia? I mean, did you did you miss a trick with your private investigation company? Because you have just called uh, what Hartley Moore Investigators or whatever. You, you could have called, called yourself iSpy or Binocular Affairs. No, because everyone would do that, wouldn't they? I mean, oh. I am... I'm a brand, Wallace, let's be fair. I've been around a long time and I've worked hard to be this brand. Yep. So I'm going to, I didn't use my name before. I used my mother's name and people, because she's Danish, found it odd. Um, so I changed it to my name. And, um, but look, I just think like Lord of the Rings is, it's that Lord of the Bins, I think it's funny because they probably think the pro, the, the series was rubbish, right? Um, <laughs> but I, I, I I don't think they're not calling it Lord of the Rings. It's Lord of the Bins. I don't see. I think. Come on, a yeah, couple Kate. of little guys in the UK. Yeah, that was my point about Lord of the the Fries as well. That there are other Lord and Lord businesses around. The monopoly isn't simply on on Lord. But I think by you know, making the joke about one ring to solve all your rubbish problems yes. does bring it back into the realm of. Lord of oh, the I see. Yes, someone cause someone pointed out, like Lord of the Fries. What about Michael Flatley, Lord of the Dance? Yeah. Alan yes. Blackman. Damn it! Yeah. Everyone, everyone's stealing my thunder here. I, <laughs> I had Lord of the Dance written down. We've we've got Lord of the Manor. We've, oh. we've got there's, there's, there's an, uh, a Canadian restaurant called Lord of the Pies. Okay, yeah. um, so it's it, it's all around and. I think the, the best bit of all of this is the one ring to remove it all. I think that's absolutely brilliant. And I think that might be where they've fallen down. Yeah. I, I think that's right. possibly what they've taken exception to. But I recall many, many years ago, remember there was a, a shop called Harrods in Otrahunga? And yes, um, right. they got a cease and desist letter from Harrods. And so yep. they changed the name of the I town to Harrodsville I, for one day. And the Blackpool Hilton. Sorry, Kate. The Blackpool Hilton. And now they call themselves, and they've trademarked the term formally, so formally the Hilton. Ah, very interesting. (laughs) Hey, now, Kate, you're an IP uh, lawyer. We've had you on before. Uh, And just briefly, you might have seen a much-read article on stuff, you know, acclaimed 
New Zealand fashion designer Asian Halewood facing intellectual property breach investigation as duplicate designs emerge. A lot of people read it. And I was just wondering, mm. uh, on a wider issue, do you deal much with the garment or fashion side of IP? Because it seems to be yes. a bit of a thorny issue in global fashion. Yeah, absolutely. It happens in footwear, particularly big in, in footwear. Um, it happens a lot to do with uh, with clothing as well. Um, yeah, it, it, is a, it is a big issue and it's a, it's a copyright infringement issue. Uh, the, and the clothes designs normally are copyrighted. And I've also dealt with it to do with interior design. I, I did a case um, where it was these really quite unique-looking rugs um, that were uh, being copied. And and because you can order things over the internet so easily, then you know, it, it is much easier for that sort of copying to occur. Well, that's interesting. And on the the Halewood case, could you is there a case? Is there a case here? Do you think? I mean, the designs are very similar, huh? Yeah, and uh, this one was a bit confusing because I thought hey, somebody ripped off Adrian, but it seemed to be that the accusation was that he was bringing in designs that weren't his own. And and then I wondered, perhaps it's not so much copyright infringement as a misrepresentation issue that you. If you're going to buy those clothes and you think that they are his design, you ought to know that they're not his design, that they've come in from somewhere else. So the, the issue flips from copyright infringement to perhaps knowing what you're buying. Oh, okay, interesting. Hey, Kate, kia ora. thank you for your time. That's Kate Duckworth, an intellectual property law expert. Uh, and what have we got here? A bit of friends. Oh, Alan Blackman and Julia Harpy-Moore. Thank you. You've been lovely this afternoon. I'm Wallace Chapman. Checkpoint is next, and I'll be there for you and here for you tomorrow, 3.45. See you then.